Succotash, noun. Succotash is a vegetable dish consisting primarily of sweet corn with lima beans or other shell beans. Other ingredients may be added, such as onions, potatoes, turnips, tomatoes, bell peppers, corned beef, salt pork, or okra. Combining a grain with a legume provides a dish that is high in all essential amino acids. The name is a somewhat anglicized spelling of the Nagarancet word miskatash, which refers to, of course, a simmering pot of corn to which other ingredients were added. Despite this, or rather because of it, we have yet to find a sufficient way to make succotash suffer. Sure you do. You just have to make it spicy. Then when you get to the end of the situation, it'll definitely be suffering succotash. Hmm, quite. There are too many cartoons, but they'll watch them all. The Penny and James have a sort of hopefully funny cartoon podcast. Hello everyone, I'm James Irish. And I'm Pembroke W. Corgi. Welcome once again to the Pemmy and James kind of, sort of, hopefully funny cartoon podcast. And today we are returning to Termite Terrace with another look at the Looney Tunes and Merry Melodies series. And this is the first time we're looking at one of their reoccurring characters. And I decided we'd look at probably their most versatile of the bunch, Sylvester the Cat. Saffron Succotash. Indeed. Chuck Jones came up with the proto-Sylvester in the short Naughty But Mice, starring Sniffles the Mouse, one of his reoccurring characters, before he really discovered his comedic style. And versions of this clown-looking cat would appear in other cartoons before Frizz Freeling officially gave him his name and dominant personality traits in Life with Feathers, alongside Mel Blanc using the voice of a previous Sylvester character he voiced on the Judy Canova show. Uh, honestly, to be 100% honest, Sylvester's voice isn't that much different than Daffy's, it's just not pitched up. Right, and it's also a little heavier on the, uh, on the slobber. <laughs> yes. Bob Clampett would almost be the one to pair his creation, Tweety Bird, with Sylvester, but he left Termite Terrace before his short with them could be completed, and Frizz would pair them together in 1947's Tweety Pie which won the Warner Animation team their first Academy Award. Nice. I think it was their three awards. They also won for uh, Nighty Night Bugs and one of my personal favorites, Birds Anonymous. They got a few of those. Yeah. As I alluded to at the top, Sylvester has been described often as Warner's greatest utility player, a character who's combined appetites, neurosis, and bluster makes him both a suitable antagonist against little prey animals like Tweety and Speedy Gonzalez, and a protagonist dealing with other cats, aggressive dogs, and other more uh, esoteric threats. It is amazing how versatile he is as a character. Like, you can literally put Sylvester into any situation, and it, it, it will work. It will just literally work. Yeah, probably the most outrageous was him opposing Daffy Duck in the Scarlet Pumpernickel. <laughs> and yet, it, like you said... It worked. Yeah. He he is surprisingly versatile. And yeah, he is by far the most, like you said, the most versatile character in their roster. I mean, heck, he's even a villain in like the Bugs Bunny Crazy Castle game. Yeah. A cursory glance at the histories of other Looney Tunes Star Wars bears this out. Daffy Duck and Wile E. Coyote needed some modifications to work as antagonists for Bugs Bunny. And at least for me personally... Bugs himself wasn't quite as funny when driven to hysterics like like Daffy or, or, well, Sylvester would. Yeah, though I still do like Rabbit Rampage, even though, yeah, it, even though it is pretty much duck amuck with Bugs Bunny. Yeah. But it, it is, you can't deny that, yeah, it's a lot funnier with Daffy because Daffy just responds to that stuff way better than Bugs does. Hmm. To illustrate our point best, though, Today, we're looking at four Sylvester's cartoons that do not star Tweety or Speedy. Since much of the best of those two characters' output features Sylvester, it seems wisest to save those for their own episodes. Because, as we keep saying, they're on the list. <laughs> and besides, it's good to give Sylvester a little time to shine. 
So instead, our first half of the episode has Sylvester interacting with other Looney Tunes favorites, and the second half features some other characters who appeared less frequently or only with him. Of course, voices are by Mel Blanc, unless otherwise mentioned, and music is by Carl Stalling in these shorts. But the rest of them have their own individual credits, starting with 1948's Back Alley Uproar. See, well, which already has, like, I don't think... I don't know if he was credited, but I mean, I, I know Mel Blank wasn't the voice of uh, Elmer Fudd. During nope, that. that would be Arthur Q. Bryan, who went uncredited throughout the majority of the run, thanks to Mel Blank's contract. Which, I, I gotta give credit, Elmer Fudd and Sylvester's not exactly a combination I expect to work, but gosh, it really does work. Also makes me sympathetic for Elmer Fudd for once. Which isn't easy. This 1948 short was directed by Friz Freeling, and Mike Maltese and Ted Pierce wrote the story, and it's essentially a remake of Freeling's previous Note for Note, which has Porky Pig in the role of the tormented against an unnamed cat. Freeling has a has a tendency to go back to the well from time to time. And considering these cartoons were never meant to be shown back to back, back to back to back to back, it's forgivable. Yeah, because, I mean, the chances of you seeing the same one in a theater back then is rare, Yeah, be honest. Now, a, a quote from uh, Greg Ford, animation historian, the director of Quackbusters and Blooper Bunny, and generally all-around Looney Tunes expert, that I found in the book The 100 Greatest Looney Tunes Cartoons, which was edited by Jerry Beck. He stated that this cartoon is Sylvester's finest hour, noting animator Jerry... Shinquei as the standout for doing Sylvester's dance moves. Sylvester is really good in this one. Yes. We'll go right into the cartoon with Elmer being so exhausted, he believes he could sleep for a week straight. I'm envious. I feel that. Yeah. Also, I, I want to say that every time he sets into his, like, pillow, his head sinks into it so much that I feel like a combination of God, I wish that was me, and also slightly concerned. <laughs> mm. It's like, that's a deep pillow. <laughs> yeah, either that or, or Elmer's head is that dense and heavy. Both are a possibility. So this, of course, is the perfect time for Sylvester to indulge in a little fence-singing time. The short's name becomes appropriate as he first does a take on Largo El Factotum from the Barber of Seville, a.k.a. that Figaro song from all those other cartoons and that one little rascal's short that most people launch into when parodying opera if it's not, kill the wabbit, kill the wabbit. It's also uh, responsible for the best, uh, in my opinion, the best Woody Woodpecker short, and I think many uh, animation historians would agree with that. Seinfeld was right. We do really know most of our opera from Looney Tunes and other theatrical shorts, don't we? Sadly, yes. <laughs> no wonder the opera category is so dreaded on Jeopardy. <laughs> well, there's also that episode of DuckTales. Oh, okay, fair. Let's see. Where Mrs. Beakley sang opera and got kidnapped by a bunch of Vikings. <laughs> so... Elmer protests loudly and violently to this performance with the objects he's throwing in perfect time with the rapid Figaro's. Figaro! 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 Figaro? Setting up our escalating conflict for this cartoon. I, I'm kind of watching it muted while we're while we're talking just to get a good, like, just to, you know, kind of recap me on everything. God, I love Sylvester's animations on this. <laughs> like, him dodging all of them, and then, like, he kind of keep and then that, like, pause where he, like, sits there and thinks he, he can get back and sings again, only to get clobbered with this giant freaking boot. <laughs> yeah. And really, that's what a lot of Looney Tunes are about when you get down to it. Escalation. And very good timing. Mm-hmm. As Elmer gets more desperate to shut up the feline performance, Sylvester's act gets crazier. The next song he performs, Hungarian Rhapsody No. 2, is accompanied by loud stair climbing in tennis shoes. <laughs> and classical music stylings are then abandoned for the then recent tune, Some Sunday Morning, originally performed in the flick San Antonio by Alexis Smith. I actually just noticed an animation goof on this. Really? 
yeah, when he's going up and down the stairs, he's actually wearing like brown boots. But when Elmer ties him up, he's got tennis shoes on. Okay. Yeah, I don't think he would have had quite enough time to switch, but hey, cartoon logic. There you go. Oh, maybe that was the deal. Maybe Elmer like changed it because they'd be less loud. Possibly. Anyhow, Sylvester's performance of Some Sunday Morning is greeted by Elmer tossing a copy of The Thin Man, only for it to come back as Return of the Thin Man. Yeah, that's actually a really good gag. Yeah. Which is, by the way, the only thing I know about The Thin Man is... I'm. I know it's a book series that got a movie series, and uh, it was my uh, ex-father-in-law's favorite uh, movie series. Hmm. I also like that Elmer has a freaking old-school telephone booth inside his bedroom. Yes, and that's where Sylvester finishes some Sunday morning via that telephone. That was that was a good gag. Because even back then, I'm like, why has he got a full telephone booth in his freaking bedroom. <laughs> well, if it was a police box, at least we could explain that away as him being an, an ahead-of-his-time Doctor Who fan. There you go. Now, at this point, we should point out that Elmer Fudd is arguably the dimmest of the regular Warner cartoon antagonists and was rarely used at all by Freeling since he didn't think Elmer posed a threat to Bugs Bunny. I think he straight up said he started to feel sorry for Elmer in the Bugs Bunny shorts because it just made him feel like Bugs was a bully. Yeah, and this take on the character is illustrated with Sylvester setting up grease on the steps and thumbtacks on the nearby pavement, which Elmer bumbles through three times. (laughs) Once to thwack Sylvester with a golf club, a second time to return to the closet for a shotgun, and a third time to return to his place of attack. With said shotgun. That that seems great. Yes. <laughs> the, yeah, I got a good laugh out of that scene. I forgot how well-timed that was. It also reminded me that they did a similar gag in the new, like, Looney Tunes cartoons, but up the ante to a point where I was just like, oof. Oh. Um, it, it was like Bugs was like, watch out for those thumbtacks. And then, you know, you get him instead. Oh, ah, ooh, oh, watch out for that lemon juice. <laughs> I was like, oh, oh no. no. <laughs> Now, at this point, Sylvester is singing, You never know where you're going till you get there, having abandoned nearly all pretense of art simply to have fun. But once he spots Elmer, he calls in a ringer, a dumb-looking orange cat. And this is a great send-up of expectations. This doofus-looking cat tries to make heads or tails of the sheet music Sylvester hands her... And she then proceeds to sing with the voice of an operatic angel to the tune of Arthur A. Penn's Carissima. While still pausing randomly to look at the look at the sheet music confused. Yes. That that cat has a great singing voice. Yeah. Elmer attacks, and the conclusion of that particular song plays out to the cats stumbling off the awning. Only for Sylvester to stupidly go back onto the roof while Elmer's yeah. still there. A cornered Sylvester tries and fails to appeal to Elmer's artistic bent, then resorts to Bram's lullaby, which works nearly instantly. I, I thought it was a little weird, though, that uh, that Sylvester called Elmer his fine-feathered friend. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> Old habits. I mean, <laughs> that bulbous bald head... Kind of looks like Tweety. Mm. I, I think Elmer is the least feathered character we've got. <laughs> yeah, other than Porky. Yeah, fair. So tucking Elmer into bed, Sylvester's next act is a one-man band rendition of the March Frat, which is a Looney Tunes standard. And right in front of Elmer's bed, no less. Yeah. <laughs> the chase resumes with a quick surprise door gag with surprise misspelled on purpose. And Sylvester is back at it, singing Moonlight Bay on the fence, complete with a canoe. A rowboat, but yeah. Yeah. Now Elmer gets an advantage by spiking some milk with alum. I I think I had to look up what alum was as an adult, because as a kid I never knew what it was, but kept seeing it appear in so many cartoons. Yeah, it's a it's a classic Looney Tunes gag, and and Sylvester takes the bait, and of course, his head shrinks to a tenth of its size as his voice becomes chipmunk like, and Elmer thinks he's finally won. Nope, 
Sylvester is now in full Spike Jones and his City Slickers mode, singing the wildest version of Angel in Disguise set to animation in film history. And Elmer has had it at this point. <laughs> yep. Here comes the dynamite. He's going to lower the boom, literally, killing both the cat and himself. Fudd thinks he's at least found some peace, but... Nope, he's got more than nine life seemingly that are coming up to, like, haunt him from Sylvester, still singing. They regale him with a segment of Donizetti's Lucia de Lemmermoor, causing Elmer to bail on his cloud and land with a thud as the cartoon irises out. <laughs> a lot can happen in seven minutes, huh? <laughs> no kidding. That, that escalated quickly. Oh, wait, this is a Looney Tunes cartoon. Of course it did. <laughs> yeah. I, I did actually bother to count how many, like, uh, Sylvester's appeared in that scene. And I don't remember the total, but it was definitely over 9. <laughs> right. <laughs> And a little side note on Lucia de Lammermoor, it is probably as well known for appearing in Bob Clampett's book review. Ah, you know, the little bit about, you can't do this to me, I'm a citizen, see. They love to make use of that Warner Music Library. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we'll be seeing book review when we do Bob Clampett's Staffy in the uh, somewhat distant future. When it comes to that little black duck, we've got other feathers to pluck first. <laughs> if I recall right, I think Warner actually really, uh, Warner themselves encouraged them to use as many of their songs in their library as possible to get extra money out of them or extra use out of them. Well, to, yeah, to not only to get the use, but to encourage sales of sheet music. Yep. So, going from a cartoon with multiple recognizable songs to one with a nearly original score... We have a contemporary of Back Alley Uproar, Scaredy Cat, which is also from 1948, was directed by Chuck Jones with a story by Mike Maltese. And let me tell you, for me personally, Jones and Maltese are the Warner Dream Team. They really are. I mean, they did like all of the like Roadrunner and uh, Coyote cartoons and uh, Duck Dodgers. Not to mention the hunting trilogy and Bully for Bugs. And there, there's a story about that one when we do bug solo shorts down the line. But Scaredy Cat is the first of a trio of cartoons with Sylvester trying to protect an oblivious Porky Pig from fairly frightening dangers. And Porky being none the wiser, mostly. Mostly. <laughs> so this, this kind of short, like, always kind of... Uh... When it does show the thing that, like, I always feel sorry about Sylvester, because even when he, like, wins, he still kind of loses in the end. Yeah. He may, ha he may have a white belly, but this cat's luck is pure black cat. So, yeah, seemingly Porky has inherited a... Or what was it? No, he didn't inherit. He got a... He's running out a house that's uh, excessively creepy, but yeah. he's he thinks it's quaint and nice. Yeah, we get an introduction to this house that'd be right at home on a Scooby-Doo cartoon. And Sylvester is in full NOPE mode as he leaps onto Porky after spotting a perfectly harmless Bato, while shivering enough to shake a gun out of Charlton Heston's living hands. <laughs> I'd also say this house looks like it'd be Gomez Adams' summer home. Mm, yes. I, I, I love the whole gag that Porky tells, uh, Tell Sylvester to like go into the kitchen to sleep, and then Sylvester's just stuck on him like glue to the point where Porky changes his clothes and doesn't realize he's on him still. You would think it would be difficult to piggyback on a pig. <laughs> and by the way, with with regards to Porky changing, insert your favorite gag about Porky's lack of pants here, folks. We know you have one. It takes him fluffing Sylvester's face like the pillow between them for Porky to realize that Sylvester's been there the whole time. <laughs> All this comedic business has a point in establishing that Porky, in this cartoon, is not going to notice anything suspicious until it's right in his face. <laughs> Pretty much. Though, this is still a good cartoon for Porky, because at this point... Porky wasn't getting as much use as he used to during this point. He kind of gone from like he used to be the uh, 
Looney Tunes golden child to kind of just every man routine character. Mm, yeah. So Porky tosses Sylvester down the stairs. And then a mere moment later, a freaking Stanley Kubrick movie breaks out. <laughs> yep. We're serious. Hooded mice uh, that are definitely rather intimidating, I have to say. This whole, like, shadow scene is pretty scary looking. Yeah. We see a, it's a candlelit procession of mice using the design that would eventually be applied to the far less harmful Huey and Birdie. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Such a scary scene that literally Sylvester's heart is in his throat. Yeah. Yeah, they're carting a, a terrified cat, which is a palate swap of Sylvester to a degree, to its death via execution. We know this because right behind the cat is a hooded mouse with an axe twice their size. These are some uh, scary mice. Yeah. As an aside... Is this what it takes to get the audience to root against the mice in a cartoon with a cat? Blatant occultism and feline sacrifice? Nah, this is just the this is just what happens when you're like an ex-Disney employee. Hmm. Fair. <laughs> yeah. So Sylvester races back into the master bedroom, scaring Porky half to death. And when the pig protests, Sylvester pantomimes what he saw and the implications of death thereof. I, I do have to say that that scared Porky fighting off like an invisible enemy was really good. <laughs> Porky finds the whole thing ridiculous, giving Puss the boot. Lots of really good uh, Chuck Jones animations in this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Sylvester eventually decides suicide is the better route, kissing Porky goodbye to which the pig has to struggle to get the revolver away from his hands. Yeah, that whole scene is really like, God, that is dark. Because yeah. it's just like Porky telling, like, Sylvester he has to go back downstairs, and instead Sylvester slowly walks to, like, the freaking drawer, pulls out the revolver, walks over, puts it to his head, and Porky has to fight him off. It's just, like, so slow and so god <laughs> Yeah, unfortunately, I don't think Sylvester was quite had the right clue because there's no bedroom on the on the board game. <laughs> that was for Chrissy. Oh, I, I also I just noticed from rewatching it that like there a, a little extra piece of animation there is after uh, Porky gets the gun away from him. There's actually animation of Porky like un shaking the bullets out of the gun while. Uh, Sylvester's having a near heart attack. <laughs> yeah, Porky finally acquiesces to Sylvester's pleas, despite calling him a big baby cat. And just as they're going to sleep, the mice push the bed. You see, the bed's on wheels. Very slippery ones, apparently. And they push it right out the window. That's a big window. Yeah. And a very conveniently placed flagpole, which is all between them and the ground. A really strong flagpole. Yeah. Porky only notices the cold, asking Sylvester to close the window. The redistribution of weight from Sylvester leaving the bed sends said bed back into its place in the room, and Sylvester air walks to a birdhouse door to close it, then lays down on nothing but air, crashing down to the ground only when he actually sees where he is. Another Looney Tunes achievement in ignorance, ladies and gentlemen. There, there's a lot of great just animation bits, too. Because, like, when Sylvester, Sylvester's face before he falls, and then when Sylvester, like, comes back into the bedroom, he's so, like, loose and, like, half-conscious. Yeah, it's a it's a great bit of continuity where, where an obviously wounded Sylvester returns to the room to find the mice and their next plan of attack. An anvil dropped via a trap door behind a picture frame above the bed. Uh, that's uh, Those are some strong mice, let's be yeah. honest. Yeah, first the bed, now this. Sylvester catches the anvil, but Porky wakes up with obvious questions. Yeah, Sylvester's kind of literally holding the smoking gun, so to speak, in this case. Mm -hmm. This is enough to send Sylvester back to the kitchen, just for the cat to spot the executioner mouse, sending a bowling ball down the stairs right at Porky. Spencer saves him, only to get it, get hit by the bowling ball himself. Yeah, and pushes Porky into the kitchen, and Porky emerges unaware of another trap door opening up. That one doesn't pay off immediately. 
but Porky's ranting at Sylvester, bending over to grab him and just missing a gunshot. Now, Porky actually hears that and figures, must be mice. Hey, Alanis Morissette, are you listening? Are you listening, Alanis? That's actual irony. (laughs) He's not wrong, though. It is mice. (laughs) (laughs) At this point, Porky is is now so blissfully unaware of just how many attempts on his life he's successfully avoided because there's a massive series of weapons tossed at him that all miss and all escape his line of sight. Including the always good comedic gag of literally like a ton of daggers and a knife hitting like a door. Yeah. Meanwhile, Sylvester finally settles in to where that trap door was and it lowers him down to uh, somewhere for hours based on the clock. When he returns, he's haggard and gray-haired, scared within an inch of his ninth life. And this is definitely a great example of the concept of less being more. Was the audience just left to imagine what these mice tried to do to the poor cat? Also, that just that scene where he goes up to the bedroom and Porky sees him, he's just like, <laughs> Porky ain't buying it still, thinking it's another trick, and again drags Sylvester to the kitchen, complaining he should have gotten a, a dog, essentially. I don't think I could quite duplicate that particular stutter. (laughs) And for the record, stutters are only funny on cartoon pigs. (laughs) There you go. Well, you know, if used for comedic, proper comedic effect, which Porky does. So, I mean, you can't beat the gag of like him, like trying to say one word and replacing it with another word. Though I think it works best when he uses a more complicated word to replace it. So Sylvester struggles, wouldn't you? And Porky decides he'll go in himself to prove his point. Sylvester then peers around the corner, and the procession has begun all over again, only with Porky bound up with a sign that says, You were right, Sylvester! Here, Here's a funny note, by the way. It, it's been a while since i seen this short, and for some reason, I thought it ended there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Sylvester runs for the hills, and his conscience has to remind him, via signs, of what Porky has done for him through his life. And that as a cat, he's bigger than any mouse. Now get in there and fight! 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 And, and, and the next scene is one of those really good examples of just Chuck Jones's really good sense of humor, which is where, like, Sylvester runs up to the tree and he grabs the branch. And he's at first looks like he's going to beat him with a branch, and then instead just grabs the whole freaking tree! <laughs> Yeah, Sylvester mops the floor with these revolting rodents, moving the house more than any earthquake ever could, and sending the mice running for their lives, including one rambling runt at the end. Porky asks for forgiveness and compliments uh, Sylvester a lot. Sylvester looks like, finally, this poor cat has finally got the uh, love and respect he deserves, but no. Uh, The Executioner Mouse never left, pops out of a cuckoo clock with a mallet and knocking the now heroic cat out cold. And then the mouse removes his hood, revealing a caricature of newsreel personality Lou Lair wearing a Napoleonic hat. <laughs> Pussycats are the craziest peoples! <laughs> oh, poor Sylvester. Even when you win, you lose. Trivia. This would be the final time Lou would be referenced in a Looney Tunes short before his passing in 1950. As we mentioned when we started describing this cartoon, Jones would return to this theme twice more. With a revision of these exact themes in Claws for Alarm in 1954, and a year later taking a sci-fi bent in Jumpin' Jupiter, debuting the character design which would later become Marvin the Martian's Instant Martians in Jones's Hairway to the Stars. Oh, Marvin the Martian, there's a character we need to talk about someday. Oh, we're going to talk about him next time, as we're going to allude to in our commercial break. See you in a moment! After these messages, we'll be right back. On the next Pemmy and James podcast, it's our 20th episode! Wahoo! We're celebrating this milestone with a look at some of the most famous cartoons featuring our favorite Looney Tunes character, Daffy Duck. 
Chuck Jones's hands, Daffy was the personification of rage, jealousy, greed, and arrogance, making for some of the most delicious comedy of the 1950s. Tune in for that in two weeks, or you're despicable. Welcome back, everyone. If you're just joining us, uh, how? <laughs> Either you've somehow fast-forwarded through the podcast to this exact spot, or, you know, never mind. Uh, this, this next short is uh, is definitely one that Fritz Freeling would uh, later repurpose for one of his own uh, later the Patty Freeling shorts, uh, The Dogfather. Yep, we're talking about 1952's Tree for Two, which Freeling directed, and Warren Forster did the story. Hey, 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 James, James, we're friends, right, James? We're friends, right? Right? You want to play Mario Party? Want to play Mario Party, James? Want to play Mario Party? Nah. (laughs) Fakes are established in this cartoon right away with a newspaper headline. Black Panther escapes zoo. Wow, I didn't know there was a Marvel crossover in this. Uh, If only. (laughs) But the titular feline predator is seen stalking the back alley of a city startling woman enough to chase him away to run away from them. And a second newspaper declares the Panther still at large. Uh, Coincidentally, both these papers have the same publishing date and the same honestly nonsensical copy, since, well, these were never meant to be analyzed frame by frame by anyone, let alone a couple weirdos like us. Yep. (laughs) So next it's morning, and we get a bulldog, Spike, being followed enthusiastically by a little dog named Chester, who's performed by Stan Freeberg. Yeah, Stan did a lot for Warner. We mentioned his contribution to Three Little Bops in our Warner One-Offs episode, but he would be Chuck Jones's baby bear and tons of other incidental characters down hither and on. I, I love him as Chester, though, because he's so just energetic. Like, this this dog has so much energy. I wish I had the energy this dog has. Yeah, the, the running theory is... Uh, the smaller the dog, the bigger the energy. That's not entirely wrong in real life. Yeah. Yeah, but little Chester would do anything for this bruiser bulldog who dismisses playing ball and chasing cars with a smack and a nah. Beating up a cat gets his attention, though. Oh, I feel sorry for Chester because when he's like, you want to beat up a cat? And then immediately he's already like in the uh, like, don't hit, not in the face kind of pose. Oh, <laughs> Yeah, Spike wants the little fellow to to lead him to one, and cue Sylvester, none the wiser to uh, anything in this cartoon so far, happily singing the Charleston to himself until he stumbles right into the dog's path. And Sylvester's stammering reaction is priceless. Uh, this is also just a good show of just how good Mel Blank is, because he just goes right into that stutter, like, from singing into that stutter, like, just instantly. Like, no cut, just instantly... (laughs) (laughs) Once Spike and Chester get over their astonishment at Sylvester's eccentricity, the chase is on, right into a fenced-off area. Spike stops Chester from pursuing and goes in, thinking he has the cowardly cat cornered amidst some crates. Fortunately for him, he's got the wrong cat. (laughs) Yeah. The first hint that Spike doesn't have Sylvester, but something else entirely is the lack of white fur at the end of the tail he grabs. Yep. I just, I, I do kind of like the animation of Sylvester like, sees him trying to pull it, and he just looks at its own tail, and then just goes, eh, and goes back yeah. into the trash can. Yep. Yeah, that double purpose, that serves the double purpose of reminding the audience of Sylvester's own tail, just to reinforce what's about to happen, in case any of them haven't caught on yet. I do have to give this Black Panther some credit for patience because, like, the dog literally ripped off all the fur on his tail and he still didn't attack it. He was just like, look, just go away. Yeah. <laughs> Spike had to literally go in after him just to have a response. Yeah, and as if that wasn't enough, the first thing the panther does is just bash Spike into the pavement using only his tail. Or her tail. Uh, the panther's gender is never identified. Their, their tail. Yeah, there you go. Man, why is Spike such a common bulldog name in cartoons? I don't know. Maybe all these animators knew knew someone with a bulldog named Spike. Because, I mean, we got this one. We got Tom and Jerry. We got Troopy. (laughs) 
just like the the go to. I mean, even Heathcliff, even the bulldog in Heathcliff is named Spike. Yeah, it's like the just go to name for a bulldog. <laughs> so Spike emerges all white with fright from his uh, claws encounter, stammering huh. about the size of this cat. Chester has to go look for himself and only sees a nervous Sylvester peering out from the trash can he's been in this whole time. Chester's not going to have this. He, he gives Spike a pep talk, and Spike's like, no, you're right, I gotta do this. In fact, Chester attempts to uh, take care of the cat himself, and that snaps Spike out of it. And this time, he's sent over the fence. Yeah, he gets a snot beat out of him. Yeah, and again, all Chester sees when he looks into the area is Sylvester. We also get a really good panic spike like voice from like Mel Blake because gosh, Mel Blake does panic so well. Yeah. <laughs> He's a killer! He's a killer! Don't let him near me! Don't let him near me! Chester still insists on going in after Sylvester, and Spike thinks a good idea that he gets himself killed. Someone call the ASPCA on this guy! <laughs> oh, it, it, it all works out in the end. <laughs> yeah. Because Chester still, yet again, only finds Sylvester. And the little guy has no problem throwing the much bigger cat around like a rag doll. And this quite astonishes Spike. Who's now like, no, I gotta do this. <laughs> yeah. I can't be shown up by this little dog. With Spike back in fighting spirits, he kicks Sylvester near the crates where the panther still lurks. And Sylvester desperately tries clawing at Spike, who just laughs and encourages him to try. Call in the, the Black Panther just peering out and slicing Spike into literal pieces. That, that clawful slash sliced him like fresh whole wheat bread. I've got to admit, the staging of that scene is really, really good. <laughs> as well as the pacing of the Spike segments landing. <laughs> But all Spike sees as a source is Sylvester's pathetic swipes, and he's convinced it was him somehow, and runs. And now, Sylvester's convinced that he's got the power, and, and has gotten a little too cocky and decides that it's time for him to take out the dogs himself. Yep. Meanwhile, Spike is being held back by Chester from escaping, as Sylvester kicks the door to the fence and makes his approach, and just continues weakly swiping the air. However, Chester's not having it, and Chester takes him out, like, full cartoon-style, like, overhead slams and thrown over the fence. Yeah, after this second mauling, when we next see him and Spike, the roles are reversed, with Chester wearing the derby hat and Spike revering the little guy. Chester's my hero! <laughs> Even Chester gets a chance to slap him. Nah! <laughs> Yeah, as far as Chester being someone's hero, me too, Spike. Me too. <laughs> Chester and Spike would appear once more, although uh, Spike would be renamed Al and be given a British accent. Although I forget the name of the cartoon. I guess he's a British bulldog now. Oh. Or English bulldog, I think. Yeah. Well, maybe it was because they also realized, well, wait, MGM has two <laughs> bulldogs named Spike. Right. Which even MGM eventually renamed one of them into, like, Butch. So, mm -hmm. like I said, um, Freeling Wholesales just repurposes this for one of his Dogfather shorts in, like, the exact, pretty much almost frame from frame. And, heck, you could argue that they also kind of repurposed this for some of the uh, Sylvester and uh, Hippity Hopper shorts. What a coincidence. Yeah. We're just about to talk <laughs> Hippity Hopper right now with the 1955 Bob McKimson short Lighthouse Mouse with story by Sid Marcus. I, I also want to just say I always feel sorry for Bob McKimson because he always seems like the underrated like uh, director at Looney Tunes because you always hear people talk about Clampett and Freeling and Jones, but you don't really hear people talk about McKimson as much. And it's sad because he does a lot of really good work. Yeah, in fact, McKimson himself would introduce himself by saying, I did the Bugs Bunny shorts you don't like. Well, he did. He created the Tasmanian Devil, so that alone, you know. And he created Horn Leghorn, and he yep. created Hippity Hopper. Yep. 
You see, he came up with Hippity in about 1950, since Freeling had control over Tweedy and Speedy, and McKimson wanted his own little uh, foil for Sylvester's uh, foibles and antics. Which, I mean, I... Like I said, you know, Taz, Taz especially is a really popular character, so... Indeed. Though I think it's more so in more modern... Well, like, 90s of modern day than it was back in the uh, original run. Since Indeed. pretty underutilized for the most part. So, Hippity Hopper, though, is a baby kangaroo with a rounded face and huge ears, making him look more like a cartoon mouse than the actual marsupial species... No wonder Sylvester never cottoned to the fact that this was no mouse he was picking a fight with. Well, you know, it's also during a day where you can get away with being kind of, well, I, well shoot, we can still seemingly get away with being uh, loose with our interpretations of animals. I mean, have you seen what a real Tasmanian devil looks like? Yes, actually, and uh, they're itty-bitty little things, ain't they? Yep. But I mean, heck, I was going to say you could get away with that back then, but no, you still can. I mean, have you seen what a bandicoot or a hedgehog looks like? Mm-hmm. Or an echidna? <laughs> yeah, that, that's a whole different kettle of fish. Now, I picked this specific one of the 14 different Hippity Hopper cartoons because at the end, it perfectly encapsulates Sylvester's uh, entire existence. But we'll get there when we get there. We open at a lighthouse on a small island, and a beam of light from the tower is reflecting off the swinging pendulum of a clock at just the right angle to drive a poor mouse crazy as it tries to sleep. I feel you, mouse. I feel you. Yeah. On and off. And on and off. Oh. Lacking the means to make a door, I presume, the mouse sets out to shut off the light by climbing the stairs, which... For this little guy is an arduous process. And unplugging the cord. Uh, I just want to also mention that for the longest time as a child, I thought rats really somehow made like these perfectly circular holes in people's walls. (laughs) That is not the case. So did I. Funny how, like, you know, that's not the case, but it's funny how that's become come such a cartoon tradition that it's you know every cartoon mouse has a hole like that i mean jerry does too yeah so of course the end result is lights out lights out (laughs) we have a parrot named polly in this short because of course what else would you name the parrot iago (laughs) Uh, fair but it's that this is a great many years before (laughs) or or jack no wait jack's what we name monkeys i'm sorry yeah (laughs) <laughs> yeah, Polly does seem to be the go-to parrot. By the way, this this characterization of a parrot is a hysterical little design. It's yes. like he is like his head is like ninety percent beak. <laughs> right. Yeah, Polly shrieks this lights out routine to the Irish accented lighthouse keeper, who knows instantly what's happening. This causes a boat to crash into the shore, sending a few uh, cargo boxes over one of which starts hopping around. As the ship captain admonishes the keeper and departs, he doesn't realize he left the cargo behind, and that bouncing cart includes our adorable little baby kangaroo, and he bounces in that box until it breaks against a rock. Whatever works. Yep. The keeper, meanwhile, has little patience for a sleeping Sylvester while that crazy moose is loose in the hoose! That's a heck of an accent you got there, sir. (laughs) Yeah. My Irish heritage is screaming. (laughs) I've heard worse, though, too. Yes. Polly repeats everything the keeper says, and Sylvester isn't amused, telling the bird to count the seconds it takes him to deal with the moose, I mean mouse. You said what I heard, me blabberbeak, is a great line, by the way. (laughs) I hate mooses to pooses. Oh, wait, that's a different (laughs) character. (laughs) And as Sylvester marches up the stairs complaining, Hopper infiltrates the lighthouse to curiously follow the cat. And the game is afoot. Sylvester sets up a mousetrap to prevent the mouse from pulling out the uh, plug. Which, by the way, why does this lighthouse light just have a single frickin' plug? You'd think something that big would need more than just one outlet. Or more than just uh, one thin cord. 
Yeah, you'd think it'd have like a whole huge generator or something. Yeah. Needless to say, the uh, mouse trap does not catch the mouse. It catches a freaking <laughs> Zippity Hopper, which puts poor Sylvester into hysterics. Yeah. As Hopper innocently claps in a playful mood, Sylvester quite literally falls to pieces and runs for his life from this giant mouse. Now, by the way, Polly's been counting the seconds, and at this point, he's up to the 500s. As Sylvester races to the medicine cabinet, convinced he's getting lighthouse eyes or astigmatism. I, I love the animation on, on him taking the vitamins because he, he he's like swallowing all these vitamins and then throwing them under his arm and onto his head. He's taking a vitamin shower after swallowing more of them than is healthy. <laughs> Oh, it's so good. Now, the actual mouse frees Hippity Hopper from the mouse trap, and they quickly form a bond with Hopper easily unplugging the light, sending Polly back to shouting and interrupting Sylvester's vitamin shower. Sylvester still tells him to keep counting because he's going to take him out. And now the bird is up to the 3000s. Up Sylvester goes again, this time nailing the cord to the plug via bending the a bunch of nails around it. Kids, don't try this at home under any circumstance. No. Also, gotta give that a uh, gotta give that bird credit for consistency. Mm-hmm. And Sylvester next sees what he thinks is the shadow of the giant mouse, but it's actually the regular size mouse's shadow. But but he is still holding a very large club. This tricks Sylvester into a spin out and the mouse runs into the base of the light. After hitting Sylvester in the foot with a mallet, because, you know, it's a Looney Tune cartoon. Yeah. Gotta use that. Yeah. And what follows is a rapid sequence of Hopper and the mouse completely confusing Sylvester. Sylvester still goes for it, and we get a great take on that, flipping between Sylvester beating up the mouse and Hippity Hopper beating up Sylvester. Yeah, and... And the smile does not leave Hopper's face for one second. You know, in most cases, being beaten up while your assailant jollily smiles at you would be freaking creepy. But for Hopper, <laughs> this little adorable baby, it just comes off so innocent and playful. He, he's so naive. Yeah. <laughs> After getting beat the heck up, the mouse then decides to take a pair of scissors out and literally cuts the cord to yeah. the light and by the way uh, at this point polly has counted up to 70,842 seconds according to wikipedia that's nearly 20 hours which only proves parrots cannot do math well you know he probably lost count and was guessing at some point yeah <laughs> but of course polly is a bird brain ha Sylvester has tumbled down, claiming he'll still be able to catch this mouse quicker than Polly can count to Jack Robinson. And that's the point where the cord is cut. Yep. This is another so don't-do-this-at-home moment, kids. Yeah, because Sylvester panics, seeing that the lighthouse keeper is uh, coming upstairs with a uh, shillelagh, I think. That is indeed a shillelagh. <laughs> and and uh, it's got he... Sylvester's name on it, figuratively, not literally. So. Sylvester grabs both ends of the cords, turning on the lighthouse, but electrocuting himself in the process. Hmm. Poor cat. <laughs> yeah, I actually wonder how much worse the electrocution was compared to the beating he probably would have gotten. That's a good darn point. <laughs> yeah, but of course, fanaticism is a matter of redoubling one's efforts when forgetting one's purpose. And in this case, Sylvester has gone full fanatic. See, Sylvester, however, wraps up the cords back together with some masking tape, saying, what am I, a cat or electrician? Yeah. And the mouse has a dynamite plan. Uh, before we get to that, I just want to say, it's, uh, it'd be great if that mouse was named Jim, because then, like, Sylvester could be like, damn it, Jim, I'm a cat, not an electrician. <laughs> But here's my question. That mouse must have tied that TNT into the cord of the lighthouse so fast because it's wrapped over it 
all over. And Sylvester at that point doesn't even try to unwrap it. He just looks at it with panic and waving hand. No, 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 no. Yeah. And when the light goes out again, the keeper decides he's going to go clubbing. And boy, howdy, does he do some clubbing. Yeah, it leads to an especially starry display against the night sky. And it's it's one of those displays that where you don't see what actually happens. You just see the outside of the uh, lighthouse and all the stars, which just makes it feel like even worse yeah. than seeing it. In the end, the lighthouse is on and everyone is sleeping soundly, including the mouse who's happily in Hopper's pouch. But Sylvester is the new lighthouse light, complete with a battery he has to hold up. And, well, he, he says it all. I never thought just being a pussycat could be so complicated. It's just the perfect summation of Sylvester himself. It really is. <laughs> Sylvester summed up in one quote. Yeah. So there you have it. Proof that Sylvester is more than just a hungry antagonist for birds and mice. He is by far the most versatile character in the Looney Tunes roster. You can literally throw him in any situation and he surprisingly works. And we hope you'll tune in next week when we d discuss uh, Chuck Jones's take on Daffy Duck. But in the meantime, we're off to restock the... The cat food? Do we even have a cat? No, but we got awfully close. Oh. <laughs> oh, 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 oh. And on that pun, we'll see you next time, folks. See ya! The companion James to the sort of hopefully funny cartoon podcast. The preceding podcast is a co-production of the Mighty Monkey Corporation and Artificial Orange Studios. The theme song is written, composed, and performed by Sean Michael Smith.